Well, good morning. Everybody doing all right? Okay, so since this is recorded, I'm going to go ahead and say this. It doesn't apply to you guys, but um, with the fear that we might have yet another um, ice storm coming in Wednesday, possibly Thursday, um, I've sent out an email, but we're going to follow Fort Worth ISD, and if they shut down uh, for Thursday, we will shut down. So uh, if you're watching this right now uh, online, uh, we won't be meeting Thursday morning, Thursday night, unless it doesn't show up, which could likely happen, knowing uh, our uh, meteorologist's uh, kind of misreading of the weather. Uh, so I don't know what's going to happen, but we're here today. We're going to jump into First Peter this morning, so I'm going to pray for us, and we're going to get right into uh, what's, what's a great passage. So let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your love for us. Thank you for this church and the fact that you've provided this facility for us to come to meet together, eat together, pray together, and study God's word together. And Lord, we're grateful. And I pray that as we dig into this passage this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would open our eyes to see what you would have us to see. I'm grateful for the chance to be with these guys and to study your word with them. And we, we just ask that you would speak to us. And Lord, we give, give you all of this and we pray all of it in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, so this week we're going to talk about growing up. Um, we know in the scriptures uh, that growing up in your faith is important, uh, growing up in your understanding of who God is, and growing up in your understanding of the Word is essential. And it's interesting because we've been talking a whole lot about holiness and the fact that you are holy, and you don't need to become holy. You don't have to make yourself holy. God has deemed you holy, and we'll, we'll get back into that a little bit this morning. But it doesn't mean you don't have a responsibility. And that, that's kind of where some guys may go is that, oh, great, I'm holy. I don't need to do squat. Uh, no, you don't get off that easily. Um, it's, it's really a, a, an issue of identity, who you are, how God sees you. He sees you as holy, not because of you, but because of Christ. But we are to grow up, and as we'll see in the passage today, we're to stand out. We're to stand out in the environment in which we live in this culture. And that's the hard part. You know, growing up is hard, um, but standing out is even, I think, more difficult for many of us to stand out in the culture that stands opposed to us. Uh, and, and the same thing was true of these people to whom Peter's writing, living up there in the northern regions of Asia, Asia Minor, living in under Roman rule, but also living among pagans who didn't believe what they believed, didn't like what they believed, and were standing opposed to this thing called Christianity. But first I want to talk about this issue of growing up. Peter has, has made it really clear that he expects his audience, these different churches located in these five different regions, are to grow up. They're to mature. They're to increase in their knowledge of God, the Word of God, and in their relationship with God. It's, it's something they can't choose not to do. Uh, and that's true today. And yet I find so many people in the church, not just Christ Chapel, but the church, Big C, that seem to think that spiritual growth is non-optional. I, I, don't, I don't need to grow. I'm fine. I, I've got my ticket stamped. I know I'm going to heaven. He loves me. He's got a place reserved for me. And that's all I need. And yet, Peter would vehemently argue against that because he does so with these people that in the midst of everything they're going through, rather than moan about their lot in life, he's encouraging them to, hey, grow. Grow up. It's, it's non-optional. It's an expectation of every believer. Every believer. And it's not something that I can just look at and go, well, that's true of him or her, but it's not true of me. And yet, once again, I look around the church and I see so many people who seem to think that it is non-optional or it's optional, that I, I can decide whether I want to grow or not. And how do I know that? Because they don't spend time in the Word, because they don't attend church regularly. And attending church, guys, is not... For me, it, it doesn't, I don't get any bonus points if you show up for church. Um, it's, it's really for your benefit because we're meant to worship together. We're meant to grow together. 
And so here's Peter, once again, writing to people who are under incredible persecution, struggle, trials, and he's trying to get them to understand, in the midst of what you're going through, don't forget to grow. Don't forget to associate with one another because you need that in this environment. I don't think I've ever felt the need for the church more than now because of everything going on around me, the, the, the fellowship with other believers. It's been really interesting to watch over the last year, you know, because of COVID and people not coming to church and afraid to come to church, and now they're starting to come back to church. You can tell, like on Sunday mornings when I stand out in the, the foyer of the church, I can tell who's back for the first time because you just see it in their eyes. As they walk into that foyer and they see other people, their eyes light up, and it's like, I've really missed this. I've really missed the fellowship. I've really missed being with others. I met a guy, uh, this has been a, about a month ago, but he came up to the desk. You know, we have a men's kiosk at the Fort Worth campus in the, the lobby, and he comes up, and he, uh, we start talking. He wanted to know about the men's ministry, and I said, are, are you new to the area? He goes, yeah, we just moved here from uh, California. And I had an immediate check in my spirit, and, and I said, really, uh, what part in Orange County? And I said, and this guy was probably 70, 71, something like that. And I said, well, have you always lived in California? He goes, yeah, I was born and raised there. And he said, but it's not the place I've always known. It's changed. And, and we decided to move. And I said, well, what brought you here? And then I answered my own question. I said, no, don't tell me grandkids. And he goes, yeah. He said, all our grandkids live in Fort Worth. My daughter attends this church and her husband. And so we decided, we've been watching online. He said, our church stopped meeting over a year ago, doesn't have an online service. And so we've been watching Christ Chapel. And he said, as soon as we were able to move here, we came. And he said, as soon as I walked up, there was somebody there who shook my hand. And he said, it's the first time I'd shaken anybody's hand for over a year and a half. Because in California, it was anathema. You know, you had to wear your mask, couldn't shake hands, you couldn't congregate, churches couldn't meet. And he said, I literally began to cry because of fellowship. Then we walk into the traditional service, and he said, we've been watching it online, and it's the first Sunday we had all the choir, all the orchestra up on the you know, platform, and the music started, and he goes, I started to cry again. Because it was like, I've missed this. See, that's what we're wired for. That's what we're meant to be in fellowship, not just at church, but times like this, um, getting together with other men, other couples to have fellowship together so that we can grow up. And if we're not growing, it's abnormal. It's, it's something that should be happening in every one of our lives. And one of the reasons I believe so much in small groups and meeting around tables like this is that this is where you can tell if someone's growing or not. This is where it kind of gets exposed that you can hide it until you get into an intimate relationship with somebody and then they can watch you and begin to tell, you know, you really are, you're still struggling with the same thing you were struggling with a year ago. Uh, you're still struggling with the anger, the, the, the problem with lust, whatever it may be. It gets exposed in these kinds of environments, and yet we're to grow. And if you don't grow, it's abnormal. So maturity, spiritual growth, growing in your, your faith, isn't what makes us holy. And this is where I think we get kind of off the, the rails a little bit, because we think if I mature, I'm becoming more holy. But as far as what we've talked about the last few weeks is that Holy, holiness simply means you have been set apart by God. That's literally what the word means. You have been set apart. It's like he takes, you know, a glass and he says, you know what, this glass is an everyday glass that anybody can use and they can pour anything into it they want, but I'm going to take it and I'm going to set it over here for something specific. And it is no longer to be used for anything but what I deem it to be used for. You've been set apart. And to take it and use it for other, something other than its intended use by God is to make it unholy, unset apart. 
So this idea of maturity is not about you becoming more holy, it's about you being what you already are. So we've looked at this verse before. It's one we've all heard growing up. Be holy, God says, because I'm holy. He is holy. It's the essence of who he is, and, and Mitchell really made this clear last week. And it should be the essence of who we are. So when he says be holy, he's not saying become holy. He's saying be holy because I've made you holy. I've set you apart. You are different. You are unique. You belong to me. And so don't use yourself for something other than what I have set you apart to be. And, and that's really what this is all about. So he's not saying you must become holy. He's saying you must be what I have already deemed you to be. Be holy. I've set you apart. You belong to me. You no longer belong to the culture. You no longer belong to yourself. You are not yours. You are his. He has bought you, as Mitchell said last week, at a high price, the price of his son. So then why do I need to grow? Well, because the scriptures teach it. And because when he sets me apart, really the idea of growing in my faith is really becoming more dedicated to my identity, my identity as who I am, as being holy, understanding with increasing knowledge that I am unique. And that's, I think that's one of the hardest things you and I have to struggle with as Christians, and, it, and probably particularly as men, that it's really hard for me to wake up in the morning and go, I'm holy. I don't wake up with that on my mind, and yet I should. I should wake up and immediately think, I am holy. I belong to God because that establishes it, that, that will establish how I'm going to live my life that day. If I wake up and think, I'm a sinner, I'm wicked, I'm lustful, I have no self-control, guess what? I'm going to live that out. I will live out that identity. But if I wake up with the understanding and the knowledge that I have been set apart by God, I am holy in his eyes, I'm probably much more prone to say, you know what, I need to live that way. I need to exhibit that in my behavior all throughout the day. And that's really what this is all about. It's not becoming what you need to be, it's being what you already are according to God. So we're going to jump into chapter 2, and it, it, this is a packed chapter, guys. It's got so much in it, but listen to how he starts out. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Now, this seems to go against everything I've just said, right? You are holy, and yet, he says, put away, get rid of. And then he gives us a list of all the stuff we need to get rid of. And these words are not necessarily words we're used to, like malice. I don't use that word very often. Hypocrisy, I get. Envy, I fully understand. Slander, sadly, I commit slander on a regular basis. But why does he say put these things away? What's his point? What's he trying to tell you and I? He's not telling you and I to do this in order to be holy. He's saying because you're holy, get rid of anything that is unholy in your life. That's really what this is all about. And, and it's all based on everything he talked about in chapter 1. We once again have, have kind of a, a, a word that starts the sentence of chapter 2 that links chapter 1 and chapter 2 together. So basically he's saying since God has set you apart, he's made you holy, chapter 1 verse 16, since you have been ransomed by what? The precious blood of Jesus Christ, verse 18 of chapter 1. Since your faith and hope are in God, remember he's writing to Christians, he's writing to you and I, since your souls have been purified because of your relationship with Jesus Christ, since you've been born again because of Jesus Christ, then what? Put away. With all of that in mind, everything he talked about in chapter 1, since all of those things are true of you, true of me, then we need to put away. Well, what does that mean? The Greek word's really interesting, and it's like all, you know, Greek words, they, they are so much richer than our English words. That's why when you look at various translations of the Bible, they, they may translate this word differently, 
because it's got so many rich meanings that in English we, we, we struggle to take that word and make it make sense to us. So it literally means to put aside, cast off, get rid of something. Take that off. Have nothing to do with it. It's like if you go out in the yard and you work in the yard and you get all sweaty and dirty and, and you want to cast off that shirt, that, those pants because they stink, because they're filthy. That's the idea here. You want to get rid of it. He says, put away, since all these things are true of you, since you are holy, you need to get rid of. So in the New Living Translation, it puts it this way, get rid of all evil behavior. Wait a minute. That's impossible. Right? It is impossible. But, but he's giving you a goal. Your goal, my goal as a believer in Jesus Christ, should be to get rid of anything that is unholy, evil. Anything that's contrary to what God would have you to be. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. Have nothing to do with it. Now that is impossible, right? It's impossible for me to wake up in the morning and go, I am holy, therefore I'm going to live holy. It probably takes me about 10 minutes to fall out of that, right? To Somebody cuts me off in traffic. I got a flat tire when I go out to my car. You know, something will get me off the rails. But I got to keep remembering, hey, Ken, you belong to God. Live like it. Think like it. Behave like it. Get rid of all this stuff. Get rid of all the anger, the, the deceit, everything that weighs you down. See, I've got a new identity, and it should result in a new lifestyle, a new way of living my life, even in the midst of all the crap that's going on around me. When you think about these people living up in those northern regions of Asia Minor, who are living under Roman rule, they're living among pagans who don't believe what they believe, who really despise what they believe and are opposed to them and are persecuting them. He's saying, live differently. Even in the midst of all that, live out your new lifestyle because you've been born again. You've been born from above. Remember, we, we stressed this the first three weeks. All of this that's true of you and I is the work of God. It's not something you accomplish. If God sent his son to die for you in order that he might transform you, set you apart and make you holy, why not live like what you are? Live out that identity because you are new in his eyes. You have the Holy Spirit living within you. You have a power you didn't used to have. And I love this from Paul in 2 Corinthians. He says, anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has, become, has begun. Now, I didn't know most of you before you came to Christ. Um, I don't know what you look like, how you behave. And I didn't meet you like day two of after you came to faith in Christ. And probably if I had, I wouldn't have seen a whole lot of difference. I mean, it wasn't a radical transformation. You didn't automatically become this saint. But over time... I would have probably seen changes in your behavior. I guarantee your wife probably began to see changes. Your kids probably began to see changes over time as, as you became more and more like your new identity. And that's really what this is all about. This is a process that takes place. But we are new, and really what he's saying is get rid of, put off, cast off that old, that old you. It's not you anymore. That's not your identity. But what the world is trying to tell you is it is. What the enemy wants to tell you is you haven't changed. You're the same guy you were before you met Christ. And he is constantly whispering that lie in your ear and in my ear. And here's where you hear it the loudest when you fail. When you get off the rail. When you step off the path into the weeds. And then he whispers in your ear, see I told you. There's nothing different about you. You're, you're the same old guy you've always been. You're not holy. And then you feel this defeat and you feel like, you know, he's right. And you fall back into the trap of living out your old identity. But Peter would strongly say, no, don't do that. Don't go back to your old ways. It's a thing of the past. It's not who you are. It no longer represents your identity. 
And yet we're so prone to go there. We're so prone to, to fall back into the lie that nothing's really changed. And when we do that, we're basically saying the power of God is not real. The death of Christ has no value. The Holy Spirit doesn't exist. None of these things are true. And we may not say it. We may not even think it. But that's what we're basically conveying by our actions when we fail to grow, when we fail to live out our new identity. See, here's what we have to understand, that my old nature has not been eradicated, right? It, it hasn't been taken away. It, it, it's, it's still there. I still lust. I hate it. I, I, I do it less than I used to, but I still hate that I'm prone to that. See, I did, it didn't get rid of my old nature. It's still there, and I can easily give in to it, but I now have a power to say no to it. I, I can resist. I can say I'm not going there because I no longer have, I'm no longer enslaved to it. That's, that's what I mean here by its hold on me has been eliminated. I now have a power within me that can say no. That's what the book of Galatians talks so much about. I can live my life according to the flesh or I can live my life according to the power of the Holy Spirit. I have that choice every day. And the way you equip yourself is by understanding the Word of God, living in obedience to the will of God through the indwelling Holy Spirit, listening to the voice of the Spirit. That's how we do it. And in doing so, we break ties with our old nature. If you're still struggling with old habits and old sins, that doesn't mean you're not holy. It means you've bought into the lie of the enemy that you're the same old guy. Nothing's changed that God's power is not that great, that the Holy Spirit is not that helpful, that Jesus Christ was not fully efficient and sufficient for you. And that's why Peter makes such a strong emphasis on all of this. Get rid of, break all ties with this stuff. And, th and this word, this Greek word, is used by Paul repeatedly. He, he loved this. And I don't know if he got it from Peter or Peter got it from Paul, but they both used it. Look at this. Ephesians 4.22, put off your former way of life, your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Isn't that interesting that you and I in this body have a new nature and an old nature? One is, is to live out our holiness, our set-apartness. The other one is trying to live out its corrupt nature, its sinfulness. And they're both happening at the same time. I don't know why God did it that way, guys, but that's his sovereign plan. That's his sovereign will, that we have this daily battle going on, but we do have the power to have victory, and, and it, will, it will ultimately culminate in our glorification, but right now, in this life, in the here and now, we have this battle going on within us, and so we got to decide, are we going to put off the old things? And, and really put on the new, our new identity. He goes on in chapter 4, verse 20, 25. Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. See, it's got to show up in actions. It's got to show up in tangible expressions. You know, I can walk around and claim to be holy till I'm blue in the face. But if I don't live it, people are going to go, you're an idiot. You're a liar. You're a hypocrite. But if I live it, people will begin to see there's something different about you. How come you don't get as angry as I do about this? How come you don't seem so worried about the culture? How come you seem to have peace in the midst of the storm? See, that's living out your holiness. It's not walking around going, I'm holy. God made me holy. It's, it's, it's understanding that I am, therefore, I want to live that out in everyday life. He says the very same thing in Colossians. He says, you must put aside, same Greek word, all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. You know, yesterday, my wife's out of town, and we, we, we were putting new carpet in the upstairs of our house, which we haven't done in years. It's really been since our kids have all left the house. So you can only imagine what that carpet looked like. But in order for the installers to put in the carpet, I had to move all the furniture out of all three rooms by myself. Beds, bed frames, mattresses, and, you know, I know I look really fit, but 
It was a beating, guys. And so what I did, I thought I'd be smart, and I just moved all the furniture out of two rooms into one room. And when the guys got there, I said, hey, do the carpet in these rooms, and then when you're done, I'll move everything out of there into there. Well, that was my whole day yesterday, just moving furniture. And there were a few times where I, you know, hit my hand between a dresser and the wall, and I said some things that weren't very holy. Um, I, I expressed my rage, my frustration, and a lot of it was I was just exhausted. And I was having a pity party that it was just me, and none of my sons-in-laws came to help me. Um, and it's probably because I didn't ask. But this sounds impossible, right? Put off this stuff. Don't live like this. But here's the deal. Every time those words came out of my mouth, I thought, you know, that's not me. I, what's wrong with me? I didn't beat myself up. I didn't, I didn't denigrate myself. I just realized that, you know what, Lord, forgive me and help me. I need your strength. I need your help. Let's move forward. But see, the enemy wants to douse you with gasoline and set you on fire with guilt and shame. But that's not what this is all about. Look at James 1.21, get rid of all moral filth and every expression of evil and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save your souls. So over and over again, here's Paul saying, put aside, put aside, get rid of, leave, discard, just leave it in the dust, guys. Move beyond it because that's who you are. I love it, Hebrews 12.1, same word, same idea. Let us strip off. Here's another way of saying the same Greek word. Let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. Let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. See, you've got to get rid of something. You've got to take off all that stuff. You don't run a marathon wearing snow clothes, you know, heavy boots and a heavy coat. You, you get down to the bare minimum so that you can run the race with strength and endurance. That's what we need to do. It's not so you can become holy, it's because you are holy. Get rid of this stuff because it's all only going to burden you down. It's only going to slow you down. So he gives us this list of deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. What are these things? Deceit is just basically, it's intentional deceit. It, it's, it's lying. It's, it's using words to make someone think something that you know not to be true, either about yourself or about life. And we do this all the time. Hypocrisy, we all know what that is, right? It's living falsely. The Greek word just, it, it literally means play actor. It, it's somebody who plays a part, but it's not who they really are. Get rid of it. Don't live like that. Jealousy, don't be envious of others. Don't look at their life and go, if my life was only like theirs, if I only had what they have, if I was married to that woman instead of the one I got, I'd be happy like they're happy. No, get rid of that. Unkind speech, backbiting, defaming, speaking ill of others. And this is something that's so easy to do, right? Especially those who don't think like us, believe like us, whether it's a political, you know, issue, we, we backbite, we defame, we demean others. And he goes, no, this is not who you are. This is not your identity. This is not how you're to live your life. Instead, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. See, he's telling them to grow up. But grow up into what? Grow up into salvation. What, what does that even mean? I thought I was saved. Well, you are saved. If, if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you're saved. If you get hit by a bus today, you're going to go see Jesus. Okay? You're saved. But he says, grow up in your salvation. Again, what does that mean? The Net Bible study note says the focus of salvation here, that word, is the future deliverance of these who have been born anew and protected by God's power. It's what we've talked about for the last three weeks, that we have a salvation waiting for us, a culmination to our salvation. I am saved. I have faith in Christ. I have a place reserved for me, that inheritance that we've talked about. But I'm here. I ain't there. I'm not living in that kingdom. I'm living in this kingdom. See, salvation has a beginning point, but it has an end point. 
And so he says, grow up in your salvation. Grow up along the way, this path, this journey towards the end that God has in store. Don't settle. Don't, don't just live in the past. Don't just go, well, I gave my faith to Jesus at 7, at 8, or 21, 51, and therefore I'm okay with the way I am. No, grow up in that salvation. Keep it focused on the future. Look what Peter says in verse chapter 1. He, God, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be, be revealed when? At the last time. Not today, not tomorrow, maybe not next week, but in the end. It's a salvation that we work towards, we hope towards, we put all of our assurance in that that will happen and take place. So we're to grow up, we're to mature over time as we await the culmination, the glorification of our bodies. But how do we do that? Well, we, again, focus on the end, live with the end in mind. He goes on in verse 9 of chapter 1, though you have not seen him, Jesus, you love him, though you don't now, now see him, I haven't met Jesus today, he didn't, he wasn't standing in my bedroom when I got ready this morning. I couldn't visibly see him. I couldn't hug him. I couldn't welcome him. But I believe in him. I rejoice with joy that it's inexpressible and filled with glory. Why? Because I truly believe Jesus Christ lived, died, rose again, and will come again. And one day I'm going to obtain the outcome of my faith. What's that? The salvation of my soul. When God finishes this great redemptive plan that he has in store for every one of us. So in the meantime, I'm to grow up in that idea of salvation. Understand it more and more with every passing day that it's not about here, it's about there. That's really what he's telling us. And then he says, if, and I don't think he says this questioning their salvation, but he says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He's really telling them, you have. You've come to faith. You, you've been redeemed, you've been made holy, you've experienced all that Jesus Christ said he would give you, you've tasted that the Lord is good. See, I know God is good. I know that I'm in Christ. I know that I'm different than I used to be. I know that I have been transformed and am being transformed with each passing day, sometimes better than others. Sometimes I'm more obedient than I, I was before. Sometimes I fail, but I see the change taking place in my life. I've tasted what this is all about, and it is good. The, the, the Greek word here about tasting something is enjoying the flavor of something. It's like eating a good steak. You take that bite and you go, man, this is so good. This is what he's saying. You have tasted what salvation is like. You've gotten a taste of it, but it's only the first taste. It's, it's like a glimpse of something really, really good to come. You've tasted it and found it to be really good. It's only going to get better. And see, that's what i got to get through my pea brain is that it's going to get better. Now, you may have heard me say over the years that I think it's going to get worse on this planet before it gets better. And I believe that because the, the Scriptures teach that. But see, that's different. That's living in the reality of that, that this world is fallen and it's on a trajectory that's away from God, not towards God. But when it comes to my life, I know it's going to get better. I know how the story ends. I know that there's a glorification. I know he's coming back. I know I'm going to spend eternity with him with a glorified body and no sin and no sorrow, no pain. I know that, and I, want, I need to live like that in the midst of this. I've tasted it. I've gotten a taste, and I found it to be good. Well, it's only going to get better. I love this from G.K. Chesterton. He says, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. Really what he's telling you and I is that when we find life to be difficult, and it is, life is just difficult whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, right? It's, it's, this last two years has been difficult for everybody. But even as a Christian, we find it difficult and we begin to question, well, this doesn't taste too good. No, it does because we have hope, because we know how the story ends. We know that this will end. We know that this, this thing, this pandemic, whatever it is, whether it lasts for the rest of our lives or whether it suddenly goes away, 
we know we have hope. We've tried it and found it to be good. God is good. His promises are true. See, it's great tasting and good for you. I'm always amazed that, you know, when you, you find something that you really like, like I read a, an article yesterday, it was five, five foods that are terrible for you. And they were all my favorites. Bacon was on the top of the list. I'm like, okay, this article's from hell. Um, why is something that tastes so good so bad? You know, but I found Christ and the promises of God to taste good, and it's great for me. It, it gives me joy. It gives me hope. See, Peter says in verse 23 of chapter 1, you have been born again through the living and abiding word, the logos of God. God spoke it. God declared it, and it is true. You have been. And here's what's interesting. In verse 2 of chapter 2, it says, it refers to the pure spiritual milk. Look at the, the two Greek words for spiritual and for the word. They're very similar. They come from the same root word. See, this idea of what God has spoken, what God has declared, the word of God, both the spoken word and the written word of God are spiritual. They're transformative. They're good. They make a difference. They make a change in my life and in your life. It's pure. It's it's. It's nutritious, is really what Peter is saying. See, spiritual food results in spiritual growth. You want to grow, you got to be in the Word. That's, that's why I do what I do. This, this is why Mitchell does what he does. We, we believe in the integrity and the efficacy of the Word of God. That if you study God's Word, it will transform your life. It not only tastes good, it's good for you. Look what Matthew records, Jesus speaking, and he's really speaking in the presence of the Pharisees. He says, no, the scriptures say people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, what does that mean? That you have to spend all your time reading the Bible and nothing else, and you can only watch Christian movies? Um, no, he's saying that you live by the word, the promises of God, not the lies of this world. So when you face difficulty, when things don't go quite the way you would like them to go, you don't panic. You go back to what has God said? His son's coming back. There is an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled being kept for me in heaven. And one day it's going to come to earth and this thing will all end very well. And I'm going to live based on that. So you are what you eat when it comes to spiritual things. If you if you are always taking in the promises of God, if you're always feeding yourself on the word of God, you will be fed, full, content. Here's what I know. If I get up in the morning and I spend time in the word, I am much more prone to live out the word than if I don't. If I get up in the morning and I think, man, I've got so much to do today. And this was particularly true when I was in the business world and when I was commuting to Dallas to go, you know, create ads for people and companies. And I would get up and go, man, I got so much on my plate today. I don't have time for a quiet time. I don't have time for God, so I'm going to get to work. And then I'd get in my car and I'd turn on the radio and I'd listen to sports radio or I'd listen to, you know, some news thing. And I'd, by the time, because of the traffic and the drive and the negativity of what I was listening to, I was one pissed off guy. And then I get to work and it only gets worse. And I have no nourishment. I have nothing in me to help me make it through that day. This is why this is so important. You are what you eat. Nothing wrong with listening to sports radio. Nothing particularly wrong with listening to news radio. Except for the fact that it will probably depress you. Anger you. So you need to be fed on something far more nutritious than that. So you are what you eat. God's word is the key to our salvation. It's the key to your sanctification. Your growth in Christ's likeness. See, you're holy, right? You've been set apart, but that doesn't mean you look just like Christ right now. It doesn't mean you live like Christ for every moment of your day. We're in the process of becoming more like Christ. That's what sanctification is all about. But it's all according to the Word. 
I love what Jesus prayed in this high priestly prayer in the garden. He says, Father, sanctify them, the disciples, and by extension you and I, in the truth your word is truth. What's he saying? Sanctify them comes from the same basic word for holiness, but he's saying set them apart with regularity every day. How? By the word. See, what, what happens when I spend time in the Word, it reminds me of my identity. And I remain more set apart than I would otherwise. I, I put off the behavior I know is not holy. I walk away from, I get rid of those things that hold me down. For me, guys, I don't listen to news radio. Why? Because I know it brings me down. It, it causes me um, to doubt it causes me to become angry, to be resentful. It causes in me hate for those that I don't agree with. Now, you may say, well, Ken, you're just sticking your head in the sand. No, I know what's going on in the world. I do keep up. I just don't get a steady diet of it because if I do, I find myself becoming less aware of who I really am and more aware of the culture. I'll give you an example. We had a uh, parenting conference here at the church um, Saturday morning. We invited in a lady who spoke on apologetics and really how to teach your children apologetics. She did a great job. I have no problem with anything that she said, but my problem was that I felt like she was spending more time describing falsehood than she did describing truth. Here's what the world teaches. Here's what identity politics say. Here's what um, all the, the negative sexual imagery that's being portrayed out there to your children. So all of it true, all of it right, but not enough time saying, here's what the Bible says. Here's what the truth is. See, if we're not careful, I think we fill ourselves with falsehood. We fill ourselves with the, the stuff that's out there in the world, and we lose sight of the truth. So Jesus says, Father, sanctify them. Keep reminding them of who they are. Help them to live out their identity in you. See, Paul tells the Thessalonians, never stop thanking God that when you received his message from us, you didn't think of our words as mere human ideas. You accepted what we said as the very word of God. And then he goes on and says, and this word continues to work in you who believe. It's continuing to change you, transform you, manifest itself in you. You're becoming increasingly more like Christ because you're putting your faith, your hope in the word. So he goes on and he says, you've come to him who, Jesus Christ, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the, precious, in the sight of God, chosen and precious. And he goes, you yourselves are living, like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. It's interesting that Paul has gone from talking about one thing to another. He's gone from one analogy to a different analogy in the same chapter within a short span of time because he's trying to drive home a point. And he's talked about one thing, and it's like, okay, if that didn't work, I'm going to try this. And he begins talking about stones, living stones, cornerstones, and he describes these people as living stones. This, this is so fascinating to me. He... So again, he's gone from talking about milk, you know, pure spiritual milk, to now masonry. I'm not a mason. I don't really know a whole lot about bricklaying, but I'm smart enough to know that it's a process. It takes a lot of work, and there's a goal in mind, right? You're going to build a wall. It's going to take some work, some sweat, some tears, and there's a way of doing it right, and there's a way of doing it wrong. And he's describing the right way. He's, he's using this metaphor that they would have been very familiar with, and he's driving home something that I think we miss every time we read these letters in the New Testament, whether it's letters of Peter, Paul, James. We make them all about me, you. We personalize them, which is not necessarily wrong, but you have to keep in mind that virtually all of the letters that we find in the New Testament were written to communities, a church not an individual. Yes, the letter to Titus, the letters to Timothy were written by Paul to individuals, but those are rare. Most of the letters were written to a body of believers. And we take what was written to a community and we try to make it individual because we are individualistic, especially as men. 
I don't need any help. That, that was me yesterday. My wife clearly said, call your sons-in-laws and let them help you. Okay, honey. I didn't call a stinking one of them because I'm a Lone Ranger. I don't need their help. I don't want their help. I can do this. And I woke up this morning regretting it. See, this is about not the individual, it's about the community. Notice that he says newborn infants, plural, not infant. Notice that he says living stones, not stone. It's always about the community. He says, you yourselves are like living stones. Together we are. And you're being built up. You are, plural, together, being built up. And you will make a spiritual house. You are not a spiritual house by yourself. You try to be, but it doesn't work that way. See, you can't build a house with one stone. You can't. What's God's goal? Community. What's the mission? To build up a spiritual house together in this world, in this community. Those people living in Northern Asia Minor were to be a community living together in the midst of great suffering and persecution. This is what I wrote in Devotionary. It was together that they were to grow up into salvation. The walk of faith is not a solo sport, but a community event in which God's people engage in a symbiotic and mutually beneficial relationship with one another. I need you, you need me. And I know there's part of you that hates that. I hate to be beholden to anybody. I hate to admit that I need help. But last night, as, as my energy finally wore out, and I was trying to carry a king-size mattress up a flight of stairs by myself, I finally gave up and realized I'm an idiot, and I'm either going to injure myself or I'm going to damage something in my home, and I just left it leaning against the wall of the stairs, and I'm going to get help. But everything in me says, no, 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 you can do this. Pride, self-sufficiency, autonomy. No, I need beneficial relationships like this. So do you. See, and Paul tells the Ephesians, you are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. The very same thing Peter's talked about. We are carefully joined together in him becoming a holy temple for the Lord. So what does he say? We need one another. We grow up in our salvation together. And then he mentions the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, the same imagery that Paul used. He's chosen. He's precious. He establishes the direction. What's a cornerstone? It's laid on a foundation and it establishes the rest of the foundation. It makes sure that the walls are straight. It makes sure that everything follows according to plan. And Peter is quoting Old Testament scripture here. See, Jesus is the cornerstone, not the house. He's the beginning. We complete the structure, but we do it together. He's the guide, and we follow his life so that the walls of that structure are firm and straight and not risk of falling. He's that foundation upon which we build, and we're not put to shame. We will not be put to shame. This build, builder is God, and he has placed Jesus Christ as the foundation upon which we build together. The stone that the builders rejected, he says, has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word, because they were destined to do so. What's he talking about? He's talking about the people of Israel, fulfilling Isaiah 8.14. See, Jesus Christ came to his own, and his own rejected him. He came to be the Messiah of the Israelites, and they refused to accept him as such. They rejected him. He was a rock of offense, a stone of stumbling. Look at Isaiah 8.14. He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Israel. When Jesus Christ came to earth, he proclaimed himself to be the Messiah, and Israel refused to accept him as such because he didn't look like what they wanted. So they stumbled over him. He became a rock of offense, and yet Gentiles believed in him. That's why we're here, right? The Jews refused him, and so the message was taken to the Gentiles. And you and I are the beneficiaries of that. But here's what's cool. God's not done. This is what I love about Scripture. Listen to this. 
They, the Jews, were disobedient, so God made salvation available to the Gentiles, you and me. But he wanted his own people, the Jews, to become jealous and claim it for themselves. Now, if the Gentiles were enriched because the people of Israel turned down God's offer of salvation, think how much greater a blessing the world will share when they finally accept it. See, God's not done with Israel, and God will fulfill everything he promised. And that's why here in verse 9 he says, hey, Gentiles, hey, you people living up there in Asia Minor, hey, all of you guys in Alito and Parker County, you are the chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Together, not just individually. So he urges them, as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Get rid of it. Leave it behind. They wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. So he wraps this whole thing up by reminding us as Gentiles that we are a chosen race. The same language he used in Deuteronomy of the people of Israel. God has chosen you. God chose them, they rejected him. God has chosen us. Let's not reject him. Let's live as who we are. He told the Israelites, you're my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. They didn't live like it. He set them apart. What did they do? They lived like they weren't set apart. Let's not repeat that. Let's not live like that. Let's live as a holy people because it's our new reality. See, we're to be ambassadors. We're not to compromise our divine commission by taking on the qualities of this country, of this world. Peter didn't want them to live aloof and isolated lives. He doesn't want us to either. They were not to separate themselves from the riffraff of the world. In other words, to get into our holy huddle. No, we're to go out into the world and we're to live carefully among them so that we might share Christ with them. Let's live as who we are. Let's be who we've been called to be. So here's your questions for this morning. It seems that Israel failed to live up to their status as God's set-apart people and his royal priesthood. How can we hope to do any better? How can we keep from doing what they did? Living as unholy when they had been set apart as holy. Secondly, why do we find it so hard to discard all the old baggage of our past life that weighs us down? What is it about us that wants to hold on to the past and wallow in it and beat ourselves up over it? Finally, why does Peter encourage his readers to live godly lives among their unbelieving peers? What would motivate you and I to take this on? And it's a risky thing, right? To live among these people as holy. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this uh, time together, and I pray that you would bless the conversations around the table, that it would be open, honest, encouraging, challenging, and more than anything else, life-changing, that we might walk out of here understanding that we are holy and that we can live holy. So, Father, thank you, and we give all of this to you, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.